So we're starting a series today about our identity in Christ, our identity in Christ, and more specifically, our location. That will make more sense in a moment. You see, sometimes we think that our identity is about our actions. Who am I? It's about our actions. It's about what I've done or what I'm doing. What I do, my actions define me. That is not the case. Sometimes we think our identity, who am am I? It's based upon my convictions, what I believe about myself or what others believe about myself. But in actuality, as a believer, as a follower in Christ... Our identity, who we are, is all about our location. It's all about where we are. And we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 1 that where we are is in Christ. And this location identifies us. This location develops our sense of worth. And we're going to see determines our destiny. Our identity is not about our actions. Our identity is not about even our convictions or others' convictions. Our identity is about our location. Where are we? We are in Christ. And so this series that we're walking through is in Ephesians. So let's begin with Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, verse 1. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Did you see that? Where are they? In the natural realm, they're in Ephesus. Where are we? Well, in the natural realm, we're in the United States. More specifically, where are we? Well, we're in Fort Worth. More specifically, where are we? Well, we're at 1701 Hippo. More specifically, where are we? Well, we're in an auditorium. More specifically, where are we? Well, we're in these tents, these these bodies. More specifically, where are we? We're going to see that our ultimate identity is that we are in Christ. This is where we are, and this is who we are. Let's continue to read. To the saints who are in Ephesus, their eyes are about to be enlightened, and their heart is about to be ignited as they begin to scale the heights of, the, of understanding just how good this good news that they've accepted really is. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, watch their real identity in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we walk through Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to see this phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the heavenlies, many, many, many times. We look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, watch this, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, even as He chose us. In Him, before the foundation of the world, uh, we go on to read that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. We move down to verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And in verse 9, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Verse 10, to unite all things in Christ. Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, in Christ also when you heard the word of truth, 
verse 17, in the knowledge of Christ. See, our identity is based upon our location. Where are we? We are in Christ. This is how good our good news is. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit is in us, and where are we immediately? We are in Christ. Where is Christ? Christ is seated in the heavenly realms, and this should change everything. It should. And as we walk through this series over the next several weeks through the book of Ephesians, we're going to see that there's two truths that are passionately, repetitiously communicated to us through this letter in Ephesians. The first is our identity. We are in Christ. The second is the reality that we are all in a spiritual battle. And we're going to see that the focal point, the target of this spiritual battle in which we are all presently part of, the focal point, the target of this spiritual battle is, guess what? Our identity. We're going to see in Ephesians that there's two great themes. One is our identity. Secondly is the reality that we are all in a spiritual battle. And the target, the focus of this spiritual battle is our identity in Christ. Because that is the game changer. If we believe who we are in Christ, our location in Christ, we will not be victim of discouragement. We will not be victim of condemnation. We will not be victim of bondage. We will not be victim of addiction. We will not be victims of, of, of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We will be instruments in the hand of God to change the world and to fulfill our calling, to fulfill our destiny. But... If Satan in this thing called spiritual warfare or our spiritual battle can cause us to doubt, disbelieve, deny, denounce our identity in Christ, then we are a casualty of spiritual warfare. We will find ourselves in bondage, and the world that was to change around us will not be affected. And we will not know the victory that we are called to walk in as followers of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. You see, if you're in an airplane, and that airplane left DFW, and it's going to JFK in, in New York, and you can be walking up and down the aisle of that airplane, and you can stumble, but guess what? It is still en route because you are in the plane. And in the same way, as followers of Jesus Christ, what we must know about our identity is that we are in Christ. And this, a sovereign God holds us. And a, and a sovereign God whose love is unfailing lavishes his grace upon us and has a plan for us. And we are in Christ. So let's look at some verses that speak to the reality of our identity in Christ. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This is the youth ministry's um, verse that, they, that they've patterned their youth ministry after. Therefore, if anyone is, here it is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This truth, this truth right here is the target of spiritual warfare. If we get this truth, if we walk in it, we will be victorious. If we don't, we will not. The old has gone. We, we are a new creation. 
many churches act like a bunch of butterflies that surrounded a caterpillar. And the butterflies told the caterpillar, come on, you just need to know how to fly. This is how I do it. Flap your wings. And the caterpillar just sort of squirms its body around but doesn't, doesn't have any lift off the ground. And so some other butterflies step forward and they say, well, you just, you just need counseling. You just need to understand. You just need to understand what it's like to fly. So the, the caterpillar tries to think about it, but it never, never gets off the ground. And so some other caterpillars just think that it needs to exercise tough love, so they just gather around and they just start yelling at it. Some other caterpillars or some other butterflies try to hold the caterpillar accountable and they say, well, we'll just hold you accountable. What did you do yesterday? Did you fly? They say no. The, the, the caterpillar says no. So then some other caterpillars decide to turn, or other butterflies decide to turn their back on the caterpillar and they just shun it to try to shame the caterpillar into finally flying like a butterfly. But then one day that caterpillar is wrapped up in a cocoon and it comes out of the cocoon and guess what? That caterpillar has a brand new nature and it begins to fly. And Ephesians chapter 1 is talking about how we have a new nature, therefore we can fly. We're new creatures. The old is gone. Even if that brand new butterfly decided to go back and to be a caterpillar because it just got tired of being a butterfly, guess what? It would never be a caterpillar again. Why? Because the old is gone. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17, we just read the old is gone. We are new creatures. And even if you decide now that you're a born again child of God with the spirit of Christ in you and Christ's grip has embraced you, even if you decide to go back and just try to uh, live like an old person again, you can't. The old is gone. We are new. Now, now that Satan can't have our soul, he tries to deprive us of functioning in our identity. And so a new butterfly who's a victim to spiritual warfare would think things like this. It would crawl out on the branch and it would look down and it would say, what in the world am I doing up here? I've spent most of my life crawling around. I don't deserve to fly. Who am I to think I can fly? In fact, I'm not even flying now. I'm just on this branch. This is who I really am. And so a butterfly continues to live like something that it's not a caterpillar. And that's what it is to be a victim of spiritual warfare. We have the rights, we have the ability, we have the nature to pray uh, with boldness, to walk closely with Christ, to function in our spiritual gifts, to know that we are loved by God and to reflect that love and share that love. But instead, we believe a lie that we are our past. When our past is gone, that's what it is to be new in Christ. And again, Ephesians that we're going to be walking in for the next several weeks is about our identity in Christ, understanding who we are in Christ and functioning in this reality. But it is also about the reality that we are in a spiritual battle and the focal point of the spiritual battle is our identity in Christ, which is why Ephesians that spends so much time talking about who we are in Christ is also the very book that speaks so much in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. Cruz, Antonio Jesus.
Thank you. It's also the chapter that speaks so much about spiritual warfare. So, let's talk about the reality of who we are in Christ. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. But not only who we are in Christ, the focal point of spiritual warfare. We see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 through 11. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is what Satan does. He deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And what are they doing? What is Satan and his demons doing on this earth? Watch this. You've heard that we're in a spiritual battle. You've heard that we're in spiritual warfare. What are Satan and his demons doing in this spiritual battle? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. Watch this. For the accuser of our brethren, who's been thrown down, who's thrown down? Satan, his demons. This is what they're doing. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. Watch this. They accuse them, the brethren, day and night before our God, and they have conquered him with the blood of the Lamb. You see what Satan's doing? You see what the demons are doing? Night and day, nonstop. This is what they do in the spiritual battle in which we are all part of, in which we all find ourselves. They are accusing us. They're accusing us night and day. How do they accuse us? Evidently, Satan and demons have the power to communicate thoughts, to infer thoughts to us. Adam and Eve, do you think Eve was literally speaking to an articulate snake? Possibly. I believe that the s- Satan possessed a snake and Satan had, in proximity of Eve, had a capacity to communicate thoughts, to infer thoughts. We read in, we read in 1 Samuel, thank you. Okay, buddy, see you later. This is Eric. Eric has a job interview, so he has to slip out a little bit early. We hope it goes well. We'll pray for you. So, David was incited by Satan to do what? To count the the, the number of Israel. And God held the sin of pride against him, and he was held accountable, uh, accountable, and great damage was done. But Satan incited, he he communicated thoughts, and through this thought, David had a temptation. Do you remember Peter standing before Jesus? And Jesus looked at Peter out of nowhere, and after Peter said something about not going to the cross, Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was communicating as an instrument of Satan and didn't even realize it, but in the the midst of normal conversation, he was communicating thoughts that were satanic. If you recall, Judas Iscariot, when he arose from the dinner table to go betray Jesus, Scripture tells us that Satan entered him. You couldn't tell that Satan entered him. He wasn't all of a sudden wearing a hood, and he didn't all of a sudden look evil. He was a normal guy. In fact, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all immediately look at Satan, I mean, look look at Judas. In fact, he was the most trusted. He was dealing with the money. And even when Jesus told Satan, get up, do what you must do, do it quickly, they still didn't even think that it was Judas. It was simply thoughts that were inspired by Satan that caused Judas to act the way that he did. 
And when Ananias and Sapphira lied about their giving in the book of Acts and they were immediately struck dead by God, Peter told them, how has Satan so filled your heart? So we see throughout scripture from Genesis all the way through that Satan and demons have an ability to communicate thoughts. So what you think about yourself is not incidental. It's not secondary. It is not accidental. It is not random. It is intentional and it is monumental. And it will determine the outcome of your life. Revelation chapter 12 makes it clear that we have an opponent, Satan and demons, and this is what they're doing night and day. They're communicating thoughts to cause us to doubt our identity in Christ. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 through 5. We see this drama play out. The veil between the natural and the spiritual is pulled back, and we see the reality of spiritual battle. And we see the target of this spiritual battle are thoughts dealing with our identity. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, watch this, to accuse him. What do we read about Satan in Revelation? And the demons, this is what they do. They accuse night and day. They never stop accusing. They accuse so much it earned them the nickname, the accusers. They accuse. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Speaking of Joshua the high priest, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. What are these filthy garments? These filthy garments are Joshua the high priest's very best works of righteousness intermingled with his own personal failures. And the angel said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments. Who's the angel? This is Jesus. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. What do we just see in this, in this spiritual drama that, that we had an opportunity to look into? We saw what happens day and night. Believers being accused. Satan's accusations are lies. Jesus said when Satan speaks, he can't help it, he lies. When he speaks... He's speaking his native language. He's the father of all lies. He's a liar. He lies about who we are. He lies. God doesn't love you. God can't use you. God's not listening to your prayers. Everything about your life is hopeless. Your life is such a waste. He speaks lies. And not only that, he speaks the truth. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us of places we've been, of things we've done, of things that God said to forget because he's forgotten them. And he separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And Satan and the demons are always accusing us and lying. So when you wake up of a morning and you think about your life, and if you feel hopeless, and if you feel like your life's a mess, and it's completely off track, and it's irredeemable, and God doesn't really love you anymore, and your heart shouldn't beat with hope and joy, those thoughts are not incidental, and they're not accidental. They are intentional, and it is monumental, because we are in a spiritual battle, and the focal point of our spiritual battle is our identity. It is our identity. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. In the knowledge of Christ, in Christ, as we know Christ, as we grow in this relationship with Christ, our eyes will be enlightened. And when our eyes are enlightened, we will know the hope to which he has called us. And this is the the idea, this is the, the prayer for all of us as we continue to walk in freedom, that we will know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. This is the victor. This is the overcomer. This is the one who casts down those thoughts, who chooses to believe God's word over Satan's accusation, who chooses to believe that the good news of the good news, the gospel that we believe is better than we ever dared to imagine. We will know Christ and we will see the hope to which he has called us and the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, I want to share with you from a book called The Bondage Breaker by Neil T. Anderson some common misconceptions about spiritual warfare, some common misconceptions about bondage. One, the first misconception about spiritual warfare is this. Demons were active when Christ was on earth, but their activity has since subsided. Nothing could be further from the truth. In the book of Ephesians, we read in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the spiritual armor, the the breastplate of righteousness, the the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the the, the sword of the spirit, the the shoes of of the of of the gospel, the the belt of truth. Why would we be instructed to put on this spiritual armor if spiritual warfare were simply limited to the first century? Because we are all in a spiritual battle. Scripture tells us that Satan is a roaring lion seeking somebody whom he may devour. Second, misconception about spiritual warfare is that what the church called demonic activity we now understand to be mental illness. Nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture tells us that the roots of what we see in the physical and the invisible is first spiritual and invisible. And if we want to affect things in the physical and the visible world, we must first affect things in the spiritual and the invisible world to move mountains that block our path in the physical and the visible world. There's absolutely mental illness, and it's a very sad sickness. But don't mistake spiritual warfare and simply write it off as mental illness. Because reality is, most of the spiritual warfare that affects people today doesn't look as it sometimes does in the Gospels, where a demon will scream out, I am legion, and causes a man to foam at the mouth and beat everybody up around him. That can happen. That does still happen. I had a conversation with a retired Dallas police officer, African-American, about 6'5", weighed about 250. He's retired now, but he's talked talked to me about when he was a rookie on the force, 
and it took him and five other Dallas police officers to restrain somebody that just wouldn't stay down. They took him to the hospital for the narcotics test, and this man on the way to the hospital said, reveal yourself, and the demons began speaking in a demonic growl and revealing their names. This Dallas police officer said he had goosebumps all over him, and they were just frozen as they continued to drive to the hospital. He couldn't shake it. This man, how could I not take him down? How did it require six of us? What was up with those voices? What was this man on? Two weeks later, he goes to the hospital, and he walks in, and the attendant at the hospital recognizes him. You're the one who brought that person in. And he said, yeah, I just wanted his, his toxology report. What was that man on? And she said, you want to know what his toxology report was? It was zero. He was not on anything. A lot of the things that we see, we write off as mental illness, but it has a spiritual root to it. But there are many things that are not so dramatic, like depression, like sorrow, like guilt, like a sense of condemnation. Do you want to know what the difference between conviction of the Holy Spirit and condemnation is? Conviction is from Christ. Condemnation, accusing lies and accusations, is from Satan. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will cause you to hate your sin. Condemnation from Satan will cause you to hate yourself. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will cause you to run away from your sin and run into the arms of God. But condemnation and the accusations from Satan will cause you to run away from God and deeper into your sin. Not all of the spiritual warfare manifests itself in growls and the strength of of six men, but it does often manifest itself in depression and despair and addiction and returning back into sin patterns and hating yourself. And if you look at yourself in the mirror and hate who you are and think there's no hope for you, perhaps you should stop excusing it as simply a bad day or that you're in a rut and identify it for what it is, and that is spiritual warfare. The fourth misconception about spiritual warfare, Anderson writes, is that Christians cannot be affected by demons. If you recall, Ananias and Sapphira, Satan filled their heart. I don't believe they were possessed by demons because the Holy Spirit was in their heart. They were undoubtedly believers because they were subject to the discipline of the Holy Spirit inside the first century church. But Satan filled their heart. They believed the lies. David in the Old Testament, who was a believer, was affected by Satan, and he acted in pride causing a census to be counted, and it resulted in great consequences. And if we couldn't be affected by demons, if we couldn't be affected in this battle of spiritual warfare, then why is there so much emphasis placed throughout Scripture to put on the full armor of God and to take our stand and stand firm and watch out for the the strategies of the enemy if we couldn't be affected in this spiritual battle by demons and Satan? Fifth misconception about spiritual warfare is that demonic influence is only evidence in extreme or violent behavior. But there is a great deal of sin that's in our life that's a result of spiritual warfare. And the sooner that we realize that we didn't just make a mistake or we're not just in a funk, 
will realize the source of it and can walk in victory. In fact, one of Satan's strategies is to disguise his attacks by not being quite so dramatic. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 and 15, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his, certains, if his servants disguise themselves as sheep, as, as wolves in sheep's clothing. The sixth misconception about spiritual warfare is that freedom from spiritual bondage is the result of a power encounter with demonic forces. Victory, this is the misconception, victory in spiritual battle is the result of a power encounter with demonic forces. In other words, back in the day when I played football, before a football game, we would all go over to somebody's house and we would watch the greatest hits highlight of NFL history. These linebackers and these safeties just hitting people and we would get really pumped up for our game, right? And so we think that to walk victoriously in spiritual warfare, we need to go watch The Exorcist or something and get really pumped up. A handful of years ago, there was a talk show host who was very, very popular for these very dramatic online exorcisms that he would, he would perform. But the problem with that is that those exorcisms would typically have to happen over and over and over and over again on the same person. No, no, it's not a power encounter so that somebody can walk in freedom. We don't have to outshout a demon or somebody who's foaming at the mouth and being held down by five people. It's not a power encounter. It is a truth encounter. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when you know the truth and believe the truth and begin to walk in that truth, you will experience freedom in something called spiritual warfare. Why is it that two people can look at the same creation and one look at the detail in a baby's eye and their little knuckles and their fingernails and the fact that we have oxygen and you plant an apple seed and an apple tree grows and there's love and there's hate and the miracle of life and reproduction and, and the earth is the perfect distance from the sun and the moon and the orbits and the H2O is perfect and our water and somebody can look at that and say, there must be a God. There must be a designer behind it all. And somebody else can look at it and say, there must be a natural explanation for all this. Something that didn't require a God. Why is it that as last week on Resurrection Sunday, we talked about two groups of people who both looked at the same set of facts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, both in fact were eyewitnesses of it? Mary and Martha and the disciples, and it changed their heart and it changed the world. And there was another group of people, the Roman soldiers, who were also eyewitnesses, and they chose to believe an eye, though they were eyewitnesses, because they thought there must be a natural explanation to it all. And may we, as we walk through our life and as we see our circumstances and as we feel our discouragement and as we realize this is a sin pattern in which I'm behaving, rather than trying to explain it away as something natural and thinking I just must try to be a better person, why don't we see it from a spiritual lens and say, what is behind it? What is behind it?
And I believe that step one in believing that we are in a spiritual battle, and so there are spiritual causes that affect things in the natural realm, we must be open to the idea that the spiritual affects the natural. And so I asked a good friend of ours to come share his testimony because I believe it's such a powerful uh, witness to the reality that the spiritual affects the natural. And we are all in this spiritual battle. Would you guys please welcome Mac McDonald? Come on up. Eric's uh, message from Psalms had an adjacent uh, message. And I, I read it. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. And I was thinking... It's been a while since I shared my testimony, and I should probably do it. <laughs> and Shane slid in next to me with a big smile on his face and said, <laughs> would you do your testimony this morning? So uh, it'll be a little disorganized. I haven't had any opportunity to think about it at all, uh, except the kind of thinking I do every day about it. Uh, several years ago, I was coming back from New York uh, with a friend that was a passenger in an old MG. Uh, and uh, I don't say, I want to say I was a non-believer. I think I was more of a non-thinker. Uh, I, I would show up sometimes, uh, accompany my wife to church, who's not here, by the way, today. And normally she gives me this sign when I've carried on too long, so you have to do it, Shane. Uh, we, uh, we were coming back uh, in New York, and somebody pulled out in front of us, and we T-boned him. And I'm in a car that's got a lap belt, not a shoulder belt, and so I, uh, I went through the windshield out and back sort of thing, and uh, um, I, in, in zero amount of time really, I'm, uh, and I don't think I was knocked out, I was, I was up above the car and I was literally in Jesus' arms. And today I can still picture that very well. Um, and, um, and I didn't see his face. And I have, he was oversized. And, and this is my perception. My head was against his chest and he was holding me. Uh, I'm back in the vehicle again. I look over. My friend appears to be dead. Um, nothing has happened at all at the accident scene. And uh, we carry on. I'm, I'm in pretty bad shape. I broke a vertebrae. I punched, punched a hole in my sinus. I blew out an eye socket and a lot of other uh, this and that sort of thing. Um, well, it turns out that when I get to the hospital, they, they do their x-rays and whatnot, and they tell me, you need to go to see an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, my nose is over here now. Um, I get back to, to my home. I'm a snowbird, by the way, so I'm here half the year and in Michigan half the year. And I get back to, uh, to the ear, nose, and throat doctor in, in uh, Michigan, and he said, well, we don't do facial repairs. He said, let me look at the x-rays. And he says, did you know that you have a tumor in your nose? Uh, and it, uh, it would have killed you in a short amount of time because it's attached to your optic nerve and it's attached to your carotid artery. So it's like, he said, this... This accident saved your life. Uh, 
a number of other things uh, occurred in that respect, but the bottom line is I became a new creation as a result of that experience. I, uh, I, I saw, uh, I, I mean, not all of us are so lucky. I was that caterpillar that got stepped on, I think, rather than waiting to become a butterfly. I, uh, I, you know, I, my, my belief is so solidly rooted uh, because of the experience that I had. And, uh, and things carried on. I mean, I, I had a, a surgery to remove the, the uh, tumor, and uh, a few months later I had to go back in for a biopsy, and, and uh, when they did the biopsy, I bled out. Um, I, I coded. There were all these people in my hospital room and whatnot, and you could see they could see me dying. And <laughs> I never thought I would be at this point, but I was really calm about it, and it was like, I had even said to somebody, I'm, uh, this isn't the way I thought it was going to go down, but I'm ready if, if this is it. And prior to my being saved as a result of that accident, I know that I would have faced death screaming and clawing. And, uh, and today I'm, I'm comfortable with it. So, um. <laughs> has mentioned before that he was a scientist and uh, retired since. And just with that scientific mind believed there must be a natural explanation to everything. But then God put this scientist in a position to realize there's a spiritual root behind everything. That was a miracle within a miracle within a miracle. One, it was a miracle that Christ held him. And, and the scientists realized that there are not natural causes to everything. Two, that one doctor told Mac, you know, this, this hole in your nasal cavity, we usually don't see people like that in the ER. It's usually in the morgue. You don't live through something like that. Three, through that accident, they discovered a tumor that would have soon killed him. Four, he had a peace that passes all understanding because Christ now indwelt his spirit. It was a miracle within a miracle within a miracle within a miracle. What we believe about our identity, again, is not incidental, it's not accidental, it is quite intentional and monumental. Because what we believe about our identity is the profit of our destiny. What we believe about our identity is the profit of our destiny. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, and we read, As a man thinks in his heart... So is he. What we believe about our identity is the profit of our destiny. As we think in our heart, so will we be. Which is, so, which is why it is so critical that we believe the truth about who Christ is, about the power of the gospel and how this gospel affects our life. John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I mentioned earlier that spiritual warfare doesn't always manifest itself in a man with the strength of six men who's growling. Sometimes it manifests itself in what seems to be a wasted life, a ruined life, a lost life, and the sorrow and sadness that accompanies that. And we need to realize there's a spiritual root to it. 
one such lost sheep who was a victim of this spiritual battle, wrote, Dear God, where are you? How can you watch and not help me? I hurt so bad, and you don't even care. If you cared, you'd make it stop, or you'd let me die. I love you, but you seem so far away. I can't hear you or feel you or see you. But I'm supposed to believe you're here, Lord? I feel them, the voices, the accusations, and I hear them. They are here. I know you're real, God, but they are more real to me right now. Please make me somehow believe, Lord. Why won't you make it stop? Please, Lord, please, if you love me, you'll let me die. Signed, a lost sheep. It's critical that we understand that the roots of what we think of ourselves and what we feel is spiritual in in nature. Because what we believe is the prophet of our destiny, secondly, because what we believe about our identity is the source of our spiritual authority. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is the belt of truth? It's the truth of who God is and who we are. Having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we destroy arguments. What are arguments? Even arguments that are internal and within our hearts and minds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is through truth, the source of our authority. And we're going to see as we walk through this series that what we believe about our identity is not only the prophet of our destiny and not only the source of our spiritual authority, but what we believe about our identity is also the pattern of our ministry. It's the pattern of our ministry. We read in John chapter 17, verses 15 and 17, that I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. What is sanctify? Sanctify is make them like me. Give them strength. Jesus is praying for us. Did you see this beautiful prayer? Jesus prayed for every one of us in this room. And he didn't pray, God, take them out of their trouble. He said, God, make them stronger than their trouble, because make them like me. Let them walk through their suffering. Let them walk through their struggle with the same strength that I would walk through. That's what sanctification is. It's to walk with the strength of God. And we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, the the person that is sanctified, it's not taken out of this world, but made stronger than this world. Their eyes of their hearts are enlightened that they may know the hope to which he has called them and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mighty power. And so... I believe that God's letter to the lost sheep would be in response like this. You ask me where I am, my child? I am with you, and I will always be with you. 
You were weak, but in me, you were strong. I love you so much that I can't just take you out. I am so close that I feel everything you feel. I know what you are going through, for I am going through it with you. But I have set you free, and you must stand firm. You do not need to die physically for my enemies to be gone. But be crucified with me, and I will live through you, and you shall live with me. I will direct you in the paths of righteousness, my child. I love you, and I will never forsake you, for you are truly mine. Love your God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says that we are hidden in Christ. Therefore, Christ's identity is our identity because we are in Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus says very specifically what Christ's identity is. After Christ's baptism, the Father spoke over the Son. This is my Son, whom I love and whom I am well pleased. It's a threefold identity. You are mine. You are my child. I love you and I am pleased with you. And what is our identity? It's not about our actions. It's not about our convictions or others' convictions. It's about our location. And where are we? We are hidden in Christ. Therefore, Christ's identity is our identity. That's how great this good news is. What is Christ's identity? I love you. You're my child. I am well pleased with you. What is our identity? God the Father says to us, you're my child. I love you. I am well pleased with you. We are hidden in Christ. This is our identity. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter what's been said about us, no matter what's going on around us, we are hidden with Christ. And we are his child, we are loved, and he is well pleased with us. From there, we go to Luke chapter 4, and we see that Satan attacked Jesus. Guess what he attacked him with? At the root of all the other attacks, he attacked him with His identity. Satan told Jesus, after fasting 40 days, turn these stones into rocks. Jesus responded, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan told Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off the cliff. Jesus responded, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and have no other gods before the one true God. Back-to-back temptations. Satan attacked Jesus. Jesus responded with truth. It is written. Every time Satan opened his mouth, Jesus threw truth into his mouth. That's how Christ overcame. That's how we must overcome. But we oftentimes overlook that there was a fourth temptation, a common thread running through all the other temptations. Satan told Jesus, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, do that. What did the Father just speak over the Son in the previous chapter? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and whom I love. And if Satan attacks Jesus and gives him his very best shot, and he attacks first and foremost his identity. Be certain Satan and the demons are going to infer thoughts to attack our identity. 
And we must, as Jesus modeled, every time respond with Scripture. It is written. It is written. A war has been declared on our identity. And our response must always be Scripture. The prophet Isaiah wrote that he has clothed us with the garments of salvation. He has clothed us with the robe of righteousness. Therefore, the Lord delights in you as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. Do you see how great our good news is? When we believe Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's not that simply our sins are forgiven and we're heaven bound. God rejoices over us. God loves us unconditionally. And God delights in us. There are times that you will feel like spiritual rags, but in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. You will feel like you are a sinner, but in Christ, you are a saint. You will feel like God has rejected you, but in Christ, God rejoices over you. As an elated grandfather delights in his grandson who just burst into the house, so God rejoices over you. As a mesmerized groom looks at his bride coming down the aisle, so Christ is mesmerized by you. Which means, when Satan throws a condemning punch, which he will in this thing called spiritual warfare, because it is a reality, and our enemy is ceaseless, they are tireless, they will never stop, and the enemy says... How could good God love you after what you've done? You must respond with Scripture. It is written, nothing can separate me from the love of God. When Satan fires accusing arrows, how could you pray after how you failed so horrifically just yesterday? You must respond with Scripture. It is written, he has separated my sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103. When Satan swings a discouraging blow, there's no use in trying anymore. If it were going to happen, it would have happened already. You swing the sword of the Spirit. It is written, I will be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And those who weep in sowing will return rejoicing with the harvest. When Satan launches a full-blown attack, who are you to hope? Who are you to worship? Who are you to witness? You are a failure as a Christian, and your life is a waste. waste. Brace yourself with the Word of God. Romans 8, Romans 3, 22. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who I am. So we must stand in truth, which means we must be in the Word every single day to have the truth fresh and ready in our heart. And we got to choose to believe the truth of Scripture over the accusing lies. And when Satan attacks you, he's not going to have a robe with a team of people with scary-looking robes and torches and chanting and, and, and trying to cast spells. Well, that would be quite obvious at spiritual warfare, right? It's going to be in judgmental, condemning, discouraging thoughts which lead to sad, sorrowful, and hopeless emotions. And we have to choose to believe the truth of God's word over us. Because no matter what, we are hidden in Christ. Therefore, we are his child. He loves us. And he is well pleased with us. Would you stand with me, please?
I'm excited about walking through the book of Ephesians with you, and I encourage you to read a bit from Ephesians every day this week, and we're just going to spend the next several weeks and walk through this together. I believe that we're all going to grow, and we're all, and that means that we're all going to learn to walk in freedom, and we're all going to learn to walk in joy and power and authority as we fulfill God's calling upon our life. So if you would bow your heads with me, and how many of you would say, gosh, I think I've been a victim of spiritual warfare. Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, amen. Sometimes we think it's just a bad day, or worse, it's just a bad season, or even worse, it's just a bad life. No, we are involved in spiritual warfare. And I'm grateful for Max's testimony, which, like Zechariah and like Revelation, allowed the natural to be pulled back and for us to see the spiritual, the true roots of, of what's happening around us, and the true force and cause of things that affect things in our life. So my prayer for you is that we all grow in our identity in Christ. And we stand firm in that. You were loved, and God delights in you. As Father, you saw those hands that were, that were lifted, that were raised. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us all victory. You told us to pick up our cross, count the cost, and follow you one day at a time. And so today, Lord, is sufficient for its own troubles. So today, we fight the battle. We fight the battle today. Today, we choose to believe that you love us, that we're yours, and that you're pleased with us, and that we're in Christ, and that we're en route to your destiny for us. The enemy can't thwart it. The enemy hasn't thwarted it. The enemy hasn't ruined your plan for us. The enemy hasn't ruined our life because we are in Christ and in route to your glorious destination for us. We praise you, Lord. We are in Christ. Help us to stand in this, but not only that, rejoice in this identity today. We are in Christ. And tomorrow morning, as Satan attacks us, as the demons attack us by inciting and inferring thoughts, Lord, help us to stand strong for tomorrow. We are in Christ, yours and loved and greatly delighted and rejoiced over. We stand in you, Lord. You know, I mentioned we can't confuse the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the condemnation of Satan. And if you've been running away from God deeper into your sin, no, that's been condemnation. Those have been accusations. It's a spiritual battle. The conviction of the Holy Spirit doesn't cause you to hate yourself. That's condemnation. The conviction of the Holy Spirit causes you to hate your sin and run from your sin and run back to God. And you can do that right now. Why? Because we are in Christ. He loves you. He rejoices over you. You are still his child. You can run back to Christ right now. And I just want to encourage you to surrender your life, to surrender any hang-ups that you've had, any patterns that you've had, and just rejoice in who you are in Christ. And in our worship time, just rejoice in who you are in Christ and love God in return in response of that.